0: The Political Gabfest is brought to you by Goldman Sachs. To learn about developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy, subscribe to the firm's podcast, Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, available on iTunes. And by Blue Apron. Blue Apron's meal kits are delivered right to your door and make cooking at home easy. Get your first three meal kits free by going to blueapron.com slash gabfest. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for July 28th, 2016, the Bunch of Malarkey edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. Emily Bazelon is, of course, of the New York Times Magazine, and she is, of course, in New Haven. John Dickerson, host of Face the Nation, is, of course, in Philadelphia, the city of Emily's birth and the birth of the Hillary Clinton nomination, I suppose. Uh, Hello, guys. How are you?
1: Good. Hi.
0: On this week's GabFest, the Russians will hack into our servers and release all of our emails to each other, mostly mine, praising pandas. But then we will uh, we will talk about that later. But first, we will talk about the convention in segments one and two. We'll talk about Obama's and Biden and Tim Kaine and Bill Clinton and Bernie or bust and much more in our first couple of segments. Uh, we are, I should note we're taping this before... The big night on Thursday night with Hillary Clinton's uh, nomination acceptance speech. So we don't know what she's going to say. Maybe we'll we'll even anticipate a little bit what she's going to say. Our third segment will masticate on the Russian hack of the DNC, on Trump's strange response to it, and what it means for American politics. We will have cocktail chatter, and in Slate Plus, John is going to tell us about what it is like to interview the President of the United States, which he did last week. He's not going to talk exactly about what the president said, but sort of more about how it goes. How do you do that? What's it like? If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash GapFest Plus and another special, special announcement, which is that John's book, Whistle Stop, which is, of course, grew out of the fantastic Whistle Stop podcast he's been doing for Panoply over the last year. The book comes out on Tuesday, so you should pre-order it now. You should order it as those of you who listen to the podcast know, John has a great gift for telling stories about presidents and presidential campaigns. And the book is going to take that and blow it out. It's going to be amazing. So you should get it and you should also go see John on his book tour, which is going to hit what cities, John, where are you going to be?
1: Uh, at, at New York, Washington, LA and San Francisco. Um, good cities. Good the, choices. Uh, yes. And maybe, and maybe many more now. Um, and the, the, uh, the book, and we'll have a special offer at the end of the show. Um, you can go to whistlestopbook.com, and it'll have the information about pre-ordering and uh, also the book tour.
0: It's going to be so good. It's going to be so great. <laughs> Thank you, David. Uh, it's. I can't wait. I'm really excited. It's I'm, exciting. The, the podcast is so great, and I can't wait for the book. Can I just, in this moment of um,
1: pre-show, the number of GabFest fans, I feel like I have to speak, uh, it, it pass along all the... Many, many people who stopped me at the last two conventions. Incredibly nice, warm fans of the show who are just, they're at a, there are many of them at both conventions, and they've uh, just been a delight to meet and um, talk to. And so I feel like you guys should be um, feeling some of the love, too, because you
0: have many fans out in the world. Are you sure they're now? not like, thank God David and Emily aren't here? Just you, John.
1: Absolutely not.
0: <laughs> After a chaotic opening day defined by well-miked Bernie or Busters, by the eviction of DNC chair Debbie Wasserman Schultz, by an irritable Sarah Silverman, the Democratic Convention in Philadelphia has settled into a smooth rhythm. There have been lots of attacks on Donald Trump, although I'd say fewer attacks on Donald Trump than there were attacks on Hillary Clinton at the Republican debate, But Republican Convention. We can talk about that. Attacks on him for his bullying of the disabled, Muslims, women, minorities, for his poor business record, for his ignorance. There have been somewhat above average, but not that much above average, celebrity musical performances, an exceptionally diverse set of delegates and speakers, and then there have been pretty excellent speeches from most of the DNC's titans. So, John, let's start. You're there. Let's start just how does the the Democratic convention feel compared to the Republican convention you were at last week?
1: Yeah, it's quite different in feel just at the basic level. It's a, it's a great deal hotter here than it was in Cleveland. It's closer. The hall is smaller, which means everything is more packed. You're Everywhere you go, it's just the corridors are narrower. Uh, it is a, a sea of different kinds of faces and shapes and um, abilities here in a way that it was not at the Republican convention. So that's the the way it feels, obviously, in the in the way it's going down, each night, there is something fascinating that happens, some interesting line of argument, some well-turned phrase. There's a star moment for each night that wasn't true at the at the Republican convention. Sometimes people would be speaking, you'd have no idea who they were, and their speeches weren't compelling enough to make you stop and listen here there when uh, last night a a woman whose son was killed in the Orlando nightclub shooting. Also happened to have been a state trooper, so she talked about when she went into labor. They took her her sidearm and put it in a safe. Now, there you have somebody who's talking about gun violence from both issues. You know, the, the, for, as a mother and then as a state trooper, it's just an interesting. It's interesting to hear her speak. There's been more to cover, even though there's less to cover. Which is this is much this is much more of a unity show than the Republican convention was even though there's been the obvious which we'll talk about break off of the bernie or bust people in terms of the televised show there's no ted cruz moment there's no person speaking who's not mentioning the nominee's name there's no person speaking who's not endorsing the nominee in a full-throated way there's nobody who's not i mean there's not a huge luminary who's not here like the governor of uh ohio john Kasich, who was not only not at the donald trump convention but was actively talking about how Trump was a danger to the presidency. That's kind of the big t- t- in terms of the unity question then finally of course that the tone is uh, far more optimistic. It's and we can, we should talk about optimism in a minute, but it's much more optimistic about where America is and how all the diversity that you see in the hall is a part of that optimism as opposed to the message at the at the Republican convention which was far darker, uh, not just in Donald Trump's speech but in the many
0: speakers who were on the who who spoke before him. Emily, so we had We've had big speeches from Michelle Obama, from Bill Clinton, from Barack Obama, from Tim Kaine, Joe Biden, Mike Bloomberg, and then a host of second tier people who are also pretty high up. What is the speech that has stuck with you that you think has been most impressive and interesting and why?
2: I have such a sweet spot for Michelle Obama's speech. I thought she, in a pretty simple way, hit the note she needed to hit about Hillary, but then also made the experience of being a black woman, so central to the nation's history. You know, the idea, the way she talked about her daughters as these young, intelligent black women playing with their dog on the White House lawn. It's uh, just a claiming of centrality to that experience, which, you know, to me is entirely welcome. And I also thought the president was amazing last night in making his argument for Hillary, but also for himself. And what has really struck me overall... And John mentioned this in bringing up optimism is the way in which it is the Democrats who are talking about the greatness of America and celebrating the country and defending American exceptionalism and the Republicans who are rhetorically tearing the country down. And it. It's like they've, they've changed sides. Um, and, of course, it makes sense because the Democrats have been in office for eight years and are asking for a, a third term. But it is so striking to hear that shift of position, the way the president was talking about the military seemed quite traditionally Republican in its framing. Yeah, it, it really is fear versus hope. Fear just, last week, hope this week. Can
0: I make a point I've made several times over, which is that it is, it is totally disingenuous for the Republicans to say they've been out of power. They have controlled two of the three branches of government for most of the past 20 years. So, like, I don't even – they haven't had the presidency, but for Republicans to say they have nothing to do with what's been going on is just crazy, number one. Number two, I think what's interesting about this tonal – uh, patriotism, which which Michelle uh, Michelle Obama embodied so perfectly, is that it's a slightly different spin on the patriotism and optimism, which is that it's which is that it's a patriotism which is acknowledging, you know, sort of embracing the wrongs of the country and talking about the the thing mistakes that were made and improvements that we have made to those mistakes. And in Michelle Obama's case, it's that you know I live in a house built by slaves and and the the progress that comes with it, but that the, that the very progress, which acknowledges mistakes, you it's defined by its mistakes. And, and, and I think the democratic willingness to talk about those mistakes is is very different from the, the traditional Republican approach, which is much more like, this is the greatest country and, and sort of, it's always been the greatest country in all facets. And, and so that's a slightly different tone.
2: That's a really good point. It's not a whitewash. It's a kind of grappling with history and then a reclaiming,
0: right? John which of you know in the in the room which of the speeches do you think has gone over the best
1: so uh, Michelle Obama's speech w- was incredibly well received and it also took place in an emotional moment that's different on that first night than President Obama's speech on the third night which was also obviously incredibly well received and then and we should spend some time on it. And then of course, when Hillary Clinton came out and embraced him, that was a, a big moment. But the reason Michelle Obama's speech was so useful in the room is that there had been a low grade fever all day long of the Bernie or bust people either booing or sa- you know, chanting Bernie or generally uh, keeping that sort of level of, of unhappiness always in the air. When Michelle Obama spoke uh, she was not a, a player on either side of the, you know, she's not a political figure. Uh, um, strict, You know, I mean, obviously she is, but she spoke with from a different place. And she did a couple of things while people were, you know, upset about Hillary Clinton. She spoke about Hillary Clinton in a way that, given the way Hillary Clinton is often described, you can't imagine somebody speaking about her. In other words, she lifted her up and put her in this moral frame i mean she went all the way back to, through the history of america and then by bringing her daughters on stage she talked about hillary clinton being the president while her daughters are you know continuing to grow up and it just wrapped herself and all of this history around hillary clinton which elevated her at a time when there was still this bernie versus hillary fight going on so for all the reasons and all the amazing things she did in that speech just a piece of writing um the attacks on donald trump where she, you know, again, having brought her kids on stage, not physically, of course, but by starting with, by talking about them, and then talking about Donald Trump's attacks on her husband's religion and and where he was born, it added an emotional resonance to that passage. Of course, she never mentioned Trump by name. In the hall, that kind of really cleared the air a lot. But President Obama's speech was is the one so far of the convention, and I, there are many things to note, but one that I would just note is that when he talked about, when he said and elect Hillary Clinton president, or whatever his first line was about that, the place erupted. If this was a convention where everybody was like, okay, well, I guess Hillary, they would have not erupted at that line. They would have applauded, of course. They would have thought, oh, gee, I wish he was still, you know, our president. And there were, I'm sure, were plenty of people who thought that. But I think the speech that Obama gave was a transference, a baton passing, uh, you know, and... In the hall, by the third night, all the Bernie boos were gone, and there was actual genuine enthusiasm for Hillary Clinton. Which, if one of the two things the convention tries to do is is build unity, it seemed like that had been achieved
0: at a pretty good level for Democrats by Wednesday night. I, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I obviously wasn't in the room for any of these. The speech that you know did it for me way more than anything else that I saw was Biden. I just loved listening to him and thought his he, I mean, I just think he gives a great speech. He's just a very, he's a very conversational, effective communicator in a quite warm, direct way. But I just thought the the way he framed uh, what was wrong with Trump was incredibly effective for me. Did em, did you like that one, Emily?
2: Yeah, no. I mean, I thought his, you know, his lines about how we don't want to be ruled. We right. We don't want to be people. ruled. We
0: don't want to be. Yeah. Sorry. That. Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great right. line. I, that was a great line. Yeah. But wait, I'm that was Obama's bes- line. That was a great line by Obama. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, yes, well, that's who we're talking about. I,
0: no. Yes, oh, I, I thought think- he was talking about Biden. I was talking about Biden. Oh, you were talking about Joe Biden? Biden? But that, gra- that ruled line was a great line. I, did, I, I, oh. I couldn't remember who said it. Was it, it, was, it was Obama? <laughs> yes,
2: that was that Obama. That was a great line. Yeah, we can talk about Biden more if you want. You can go on about Biden. I felt like the president kind of eclipsed everyone. Um, And I guess about the enthusiasm, John, I was hanging out with some friends last night who were saying that they still feel uninspired by Hillary Clinton. And I found myself really bridling at that in a way that I sort of feel sheepish about because eight years ago when Obama, you know, took the nomination from Hillary, I um, resented o- women, many older women who felt like younger women were betraying them by supporting Obama. But right now, I just want everyone to not take for granted that a woman is getting this nomination and is going to have to, like, fight the fight of her life to become president of the United States and save us from a madman. Um, it feels emotional to me. And I, I know that Hillary comes with baggage, but right now I don't care. I just want this to be a kind of moment of triumph for this ceiling that she's shattering.
0: It, you know, Emily, just to, to ask, it is odd to me. I mean, certainly the newspaper headlines on Wednesday were, you know, Hillary Clinton, first woman, major party presidential nominee in American history, and it acknowledged it. But that does seem to have been sort of overshadowed. In a way, it's, It was. it's always been almost built into the price of Hillary Clinton, it's it's sort of like, well, we knew this was going to happen. And, and the actual moment appears to have passed without much kind of hoo-ha and hoopla. Well, the and, roll call and I was amazing.
2: If, I don't know if you watched the video of like, the, well, there are just these, there's a 102-year-old woman, you know, who was born when women could barely vote. I mean, it's just crazy. And there she is shouting out Hillary's name. I, you know, that brought me to tears. Like, so there has been a little of that, but I think you're right. There hasn't been enough. Um, Frank Ruta and I think Amy Sullivan wrote a piece a month or two ago pointing out that Hillary is a first-generation feminist and that Obama is a second-generation civil rights figure and that in some ways it's easier to be second-generation. You carry less baggage. You are not, you know, necessarily stuck with the awkwardness or the errors that people who are first articulating ideas tend to have. And it is this strike against Hillary, but I also feel like it's unfair because there's a reason that we have an older woman in this role. It has to do with how uncomfortable and ambivalent we are about having women running for office and being in power. And so I'm I just and i'm the numbers showing how many white men are not voting for her and how much worse her numbers are with them than Obama or Kerry is just making me feel that this election is drenched in sexism in a way that i like I just want to acknowledge
0: i'm
1: i'm a I'm an old I white guy. They're... I'm voting for her
2: <laughs> good.
1: The reason that it's not in the interests of the Clinton campaign to overdo the historical nature of the moment, although. I don't know if this made it on TV, but the the final tableau on Tuesday night was, you know, 44 presidents, male presidents, one after another, pictures of them, and then finally Hillary Clinton's image breaks through – Echoing the breaking of the glass ceiling and then she's on the on the video screen. That was obviously as many times as it had been mentioned in the evening. That was the the visual representation of the historic moment. Just an aside, candidates shouldn't appear by video at conventions. Trump did it. Hillary Clinton did it. It doesn't look right in the hall i don't know what it looks like for tv viewers it feels like um hunger games sort of like futuristic your leader lording over you it just doesn't it doesn't it doesn't feel right anyway i think the reason that the clinton campaign doesn't want to go too overboard on the historic nature of it is they don't want her to be seen as just a that's that's her candidacy and the whole point of the of this four-day show here is to talk about her long history of working on these issues that she cares about and her attributes and her skills that she has walking into the office none of which has to do with her gender and which they want to really
0: highlight which may be why you're not getting as much as you as you may want so a couple more questions than this then we'll sort of talk about bernie the bernie or bust. Uh, in, in our second segment one of the things that i found striking and a little bit uh, demoralizing if i were a democratic party activist is that it, it's been a great roster of speeches i mean if you have michelle obama Barack obama joe biden elizabeth warren mike bloomberg it's a really uh, bill clinton it's it's great speeches great speakers it's a lot of old timers and the new blood that they highlighted they had cory booker Martin O'Malley apparently spoke at some point.
2: Is Andrew Cuomo on the program for tonight? Does he count as new blood? Is
0: he? Maybe he is. Yeah, I mean, I guess he's he's not. You know, he's probably in his mid fifties or something. But Jill
2: it's, Brand, she spoke.
0: It doesn't feel Seriously like Jill Brand. Yeah. It doesn't feel like they have. They've got a lot coming up. In contrast, the Republicans who didn't have those people at their convention either, because most of them were just like, forget it, I'm not going to show up. But the Republicans clearly, for all that they were washed out by Trump, there is this huge lineup of relatively young Republican governors and, and, and Republican, uh, rising conservative stars, Democrats, it just doesn't feel like that bench is there or that they've been able to highlight them. Is that, is there a worry about that, John, in the, in the party, in the yeah, in the, at I the think convention, I guess, I should say.
1: I don't know about at the convention. I mean, they have such a, they can't fix all of their challenges in one. And the biggest challenge is trying to kind of relaunch Hillary Clinton and so and relaunch isn't exactly what they're trying to do but um and we should get back to that before we leave the topic but um yeah but it's clearly evident in the two parties although as you say the republican convention what is was it was it was a trump convention not a republican convention so you don't you didn't see all the bright young stars one thing that struck me i have sort of two main thoughts about the bill clinton speech the which we haven't even talked about and the obama speech one is, what do speeches, do they matter in the way that they once might have? Speeches that make an argument, speeches that rally uh, a crowd emotionally in the current political environment with these two candidates and the current media environment where things get chopped up and spliced around. How much does a great speech matter at all? I can sort of argue it. different ways. I think what Barack Obama did was, it reminded me in, in 2012, when people in the Organizing for America were feeling kind of down, one of them told me they used to go back and watch Barack Obama's 2004 speech at Kerry's convention, to kind of remind them why they were inspired in the first place. I think that That could happen again with Barack Obama's speech last night. What he talked about was people getting involved, being involved, staying involved in the hard business of government because it sustained him through his eight years. And that involvement is a part of the America he was sketching out, the America that was optimistic and different than the one Donald Trump created. Donald Trump's convention was basically all this stuff is bad. Elect me. I'll fix it. Obama's was we must carry this thing we have been a part of together so that if you're an activist, you think everything I do for the next couple of weeks is a part of the solution, as opposed to Donald Trump, you're acting to then start the solutions beginning once he's elected. And I just wonder whether the argument that Clinton is making and that Obama made implicitly in his remarks, which is keep this slow grinding change going, gets through. Or whether the appeal of the kind
0: of radical change that Trump is making is just more appealing. Right. All right. Two two quick things, and then we're going to move on to our second topic. So first, uh, Emily, Tim Kaine, anything to say? Uh, I mean, certainly Tim Kaine represents slow grinding change. it Seems like he doesn't. He he doesn't. He's not a Sarah Palin type figure.
2: He speaks Spanish very nicely. Oh my and God! He,
0: Enough with he, it. All right.
2: Oh right, you're not into that. I like it how uh, he's rattling that off.
0: You know, look, no. I mean,
2: he seems super likable. He's like seems he has a kind of ordinary white guy air about him that I I hope is useful in some way. But what did you guys think of the moment in his speech where he started mocking and imitating Trump? Poor, did you think that bad was, imitation. I, yeah, me too. I didn't think that worked very well at all, and I it, uh, I, I kind of kept wanting him to just stop. Yeah. It was like making me cringe
0: yeah he's like he's he's such a dad. He's got a great dad feeling. You feel like he'd be he would be great coach of the 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 school soccer team, the girls or the girls volleyball team. and just he just like got a real earthy solidity to him, but not um not a lot of drama. The idea of mocking Donald Trump may be the way to kind of get under his skin.
1: but it was it seemed the least effective critique of Trump. The more powerful it seemed to me argument was the one made by repeated you know Leon Panetta. Bloomberg, Obama, Biden, the idea that the job is a job with high stakes, where sometimes you are the lonely single person at the end of this decision making, and you need to be solid, and that Donald Trump is not solid. That seemed to me to be a better it was yeah. showing rather than telling and Kane was all yes. about basically right. just telling. Right.
2: The other thing I thought was for, at least resonated deeply for me was like, which America do we wanna live in? Do we wanna live in America where people pull together and they go beyond difference, et cetera? Do we wanna live in America where people turn on each other? And I, I did feel like several speakers very effectively articulated that, the distance in those visions.
0: Before we, again, get to the next segment, I just have to, because Michael Bloomberg is not ever going to be my president. I mean, he's the president in my fan fiction that I write, uh, but, <laughs> but he's not ever. In your fantasy
1: gonna, presidential league. <laughs> in
0: my fantasy presidential league, he's, he's uh, president every year in the shrine I've set up at my house. But I just want to say a word that maybe hit the last big national speech that Mike Bloomberg ever gives. And um, I was glad to see it, especially like the I'm a New Yorker and I know a con when I see one line. I miss that guy. He was great mayor, smart guy, great business leader, and he will never be president. Political gabfest is brought to you by Goldman Sachs. For answers to the world's most pressing economic questions, from the industries at risk of disruption to understanding bouts of market volatility,
1: tune into Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, the firm's podcast. Each episode features in-depth discussions with some of the firm's leading experts on the markets, evolving industries,
0: and the global economy. Subscribe to Exchanges at Goldman Sachs on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, or listen at gs.com slash podcast. The biggest story of the first part of the Democratic Convention was the division in the party. The leaked DNC documents revealed what everyone knew, which is that the party elite was pushing for a Clinton victory, even as it pretended it wasn't. DNC chair Debbie Wasserman Schultz got bounced for this, the Bernie or Buster's We're raging, raging, raging in the first part of it. John, let's talk briefly about sort of of the the split in the party that was there at the beginning and whether it's been bridged. Has the Bernie or bust energy as of taping today, Thursday morning, has that dissipated?
1: I think it has. I think Bernie Sanders went a long way to to doing that. There are still people protesting. There are still people who are angry. So it has not been completely excised from Philadelphia here. But in the hall, it's definitely different. I was really struck by listening to Bernie Sanders at a, rep- at a breakfast with supporters basically make the case I wanted to win. I didn't win. I'm really disappointed. But I really care about these issues. And a lot of big things that have to change, they change slowly and over time. And they change not because of flashy victories, but because people toiled when it was hard and, and you weren't winning in big ways and keeping up the fight is as important to the success of the change that he was arguing for as it was going to his rallies. And that's actually a version of what Bill Clinton was saying and a version of what Barack Obama was saying. Bernie Sanders was basically arguing that they had to that his supporters had to get over it. While at the same time, he was saying, look, I understand the emotionalism. He said about 5% of the people who were in, who who were his delegates had ever been a part of the Democratic uh, conventions before. In other words, they weren't party people who were just kind of coming along and would easily be appealed to by fealty to the Democratic Party. So he understood everybody's feelings, but was really making the case for if you care about the issues, then you got to keep fighting and you'll just do it. By supporting uh, Hillary Clinton. The fact that he did that, that Elizabeth Warren did that in her speech. These are not sort of cute endorsements. These were full throated endorsements. And then the Clinton people organized the roll call vote in the way so that Bernie Sanders could have his moment in the sun. He not only had his primetime speech, but they arranged the moment for him to uh, have the, the capstone Symbolic moment at the end of the roll call vote, which they did not allow Ted Kennedy to do, obviously, in 1980, which Hillary Clinton had her moment in 2008 when she um, stopped the roll call vote for during Obama's convention. But this was even more of an acknowledgement of what Sanders had created than when Obama said, basically, the only way we're going to succeed is if we all behave like Bernie Sanders, putting Sanders in in line with the same movement that obama built in terms of this idea of constantly being an activist for change not just in the process but always i think they did a lot of things to elevate him and given all that happened given that the chairman chairwoman of the party had to resign because uh, the dnc was was helping hillary clinton given where it started uh, where it ends is a pretty big transformation in terms of unity based on what could have
0: happened at the start of this thing. Emily should should Sanders supporters be justifiably angry about what was revealed in the the leaked DNC emails, the fact that clearly there was the party w- wanted Clinton and was uniting around Clinton earlier and wasn't it wasn't being a totally neutral arbiter.
2: Yeah, I think so. It's a little confusing to me. I mean, parties are private organizations, right? So why – I'm not saying that we shouldn't imagine that they should be neutral, but I was trying to think about that. Like, why should they be? Are they supposed to be this kind of fair arbiter? I mean, obviously we don't want them, like, stuffing ballot boxes, and I guess that's the problem, is where – does the line get crossed from the party having an interest in what, you know, its leadership thinks is the strongest candidate versus like actually putting a thumb on the scale in a way that changes the contest? And I can't I mean, I, it's counterfactuals are so hard to figure out, but I can't quite piece together whether, you know, how rational the Sanders supporter argument would be that, you know, their guy would have won if the party hadn't been in the tank for Hillary Clinton.
0: Is the scalp of Debbie Wasserman Schultz meaningful, John? I, I, I mean, I've obviously like I've heard her give a speech. I think at the Gridiron, maybe when we went to the Gridiron Lots of once. Curly hair, on yeah, that she's got scalp. she's got I great curly hair. hair. I mean, like as a as a as a big fan of curly hair, I like her curly hair. But is that a big deal that Debbie Wasserman Schultz is no longer the chair of the DNC? It was in the in the stage
1: management and you know theatrical production of a Democratic convention. It was important to have that actor off the stage by the end of the first act or even before the first act started. So it was the sacrifice was really needed at the time. And so the benefit of the sacrifice outweighs whatever benefit she would have provided over the four days or the rest of the election. And also by the way, Donna Brazil stepping in to fill that role when Donna walked out on the Stage huge applause like she's a big she has big fans in the party. It was uh, helpful to Democrats that they could once they pushed Debbie Wasserman Schultz out of the way that they had a, a figure people could rally to for this symbolic moment. One tiny other thing. This is not to excuse the emails, but somebody was making a case to me that the, saying like, okay, what's the what's the best possible defense you could make for the DNC, particularly in the email in which the CFO of the DNC was saying, like, can't we raise the religion question about um, Sanders because people uh, will uh, find it odd that he's an atheist and that might hurt him in, in some of these primary states. This person's... D- quasi-defense was the DNC's job is to make sure that the president gets elected. By the time they were sending these emails, it was clear that Sanders was not going to win. He was hanging on longer than he should have, and that was hurting the ultimate nominee of the party. And the DNC's job is to help the ultimate nominee in the party. So since it was clear that Clinton was going to be the nominee, getting Sanders out of the race was actually an act not to adjudicate between the two candidates, but an act to help the one that was clearly going to be the party nominee. I don't think that would convince a lot of people, but it was, um, it was not a bad defense in what seems like a thoroughly undefen- I mean, it's indefensible to use religion as a wedge with a candidate. It is what people rail about Donald Trump doing, and so that's indefensible, but the idea of trying to move Bernie Sanders off stage once it became clear that Hillary Clinton was going to be the nominee, seems like you could construct a defense for that, even though
0: I'm- uh, even though it's not a super strong one. Just a side note, which is that our former Gaffest intern, Jeff Friedrich, just walked by the DC studio with a huge beard. Haven't seen him in must be a year. That was exciting. Um, You guys are not as excited by that because you didn't see Jeff's huge beard. We don't have the
2: co-affinity beard feeling that you do.
0: It's a really, it was a really monstrous beard.
2: (laughs) I don't think monstrous is really a word that you need to use for it. I'm sure it was full and lustrous. How about that?
0: Lustrous. Okay. Um... All right, last couple of questions on this. First, was it bad convention management, John, to have the Bernie or Busters be so audible of this relatively small minority of people? I think the more you try to
1: manage that stuff, the worse it becomes, because um, then you get people acting out in ways outside the hall that all the cameras go and cover. The tension in any of these conventions is, and this was true with letting Ted Cruz speak, the tension is give them enough room to be in their you know quasi ununified position because that will let them kind of yell themselves out it'll make them feel like they were heard through the process but then ultimately they will be subsumed by the by the borg so i think they probably managed it as well as they could and i think that's true too of the republicans although it was a cleaner The Republicans had a rules issue that was a little uh, slightly different, but I think that's about as best as you can do. And also, by the way, it, 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 I mean, conventions were are and should be, and certainly used to be messy things. The fact that the messiness of inner party conflict is sort of not tolerated seems to me a big problem because it, it doesn't recognize the fact that people have different views and are really passionate about those views and that parties are healthy when that happens. One of the reasons you could argue that both parties have a big group of people who are angry with their leaders is that the mechanism for dissent is kind of squeezed into this narrow little lane. And when that happens, people feel like they're being railroaded and they act out. And so let's all recognize that there's a lot more ferment in party politics and that that's a good thing.
0: Now let's hear from our sponsor, Blue Apron. Not all ingredients are created equal. Fresh, high-quality ingredients taste better and are better for you. So it's important to know where your food comes from. Blue Apron knows that when you cook with incredible ingredients, you make incredible meals. So they set the highest quality standards for their community of artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, fisheries, and ranchers. Whether it's Japanese ramen noodles, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, or heirloom tomatoes, Blue Apron is bringing you the best. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. Check out this week's menu and get your three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash gabfest. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash gabfest. Blue Apron. A better way to cook, Russia. If you're listening, I hope you're able to find the thirty thousand emails that are missing. So say I think it. They
2: could look for some other things too, like you know my lost keys. Like they could just get busy and find everything.
0: Right. Well, that was Donald Trump, of course, talking about the apparent Russian hack of DNC servers starting in 2015. There is very, very strong forensic evidence, which I don't totally understand i don't even partially understand but which smart people do understand that suggests that russian government spies from two different russian elements in the russian government apparatus hacked the dnc possibly the clinton foundation possibly even who knows hillary clinton's email stole certainly a year's worth of email from the dnc leaked it to WikiLeaks, which then dumped the leaked documents this week in what seems to be an effort to damage Hillary Clinton and sow chaos for the general election campaign, this is a pretty shocking scandal for two reasons. Two reason number one is that it is a foreign government actively intervening uh, to disrupt American politics, and and possibly by picking a side. Possibly they're trying to you know damage Hillary Clinton and and raise up Donald Trump for Russian interests. Um, the second part of it is that it is. This has been compounded by Trump's very strange response and his encouragement of hackers to find Hillary's deleted emails and to conduct cyber espionage against the United States, to invite an enemy of the United States to, to wage cyber war against us for his own political purposes. And thirdly, because Trump, because of the weird relationship that Trump has to Russia, there's been interesting new reporting this week from Talking Points Memo and other places detailing the alarmingly close ties that Trump and his inner circle have to Russian financiers and politicians and Trump's sympathy for Putin and for some of his more deplorable tendencies. So if this is a Russian hack, Emily, has it has it changed the rules of politics? Because I, I would point out that the United States has it in its own way Interfe- intervened in elections all around the world. It's overthrown governments uh, historically. It's can we campaigned against Brexit. Is it OK for foreigners to wage cyber warfare to interfere in in our elections?
2: Well, it's certainly not good for us to have the Russians trying to do this with this degree of subterfuge. And surely it's unprecedented for a foreign government to hack into the communications of an American political party not to mention releasing the information at this incredibly sensitive moment. So, you know, I guess you could argue that there's a double standard there. Yes, it is true that American espionage and American, you know, diplomacy has interfered with lots of other people's elections. And yet I still don't want Russia to be doing it to us. That seems scary.
0: Yeah. Do we think that this is going to become a sort of habitual feature of American politics? Because we have very powerful, very technologically savvy enemies who I think have come to the realization that we're very unlikely that there are going to be big hot wars between major powers in the next you know, couple of decades. I think there's certainly that there, we can have tension with China or with Russia or other countries, but it's unlikely that there's going to be hot wars, but that this form of conflict seems like the, the conflict of our time. So should we Gird ourselves for a situation where everything is being stolen and released. Do you think that's going to happen, John? Yes,
1: although I think people will stop being so stupid about what they write on email. Um, will
2: they ever, uh, though? It is amazing how that remains with us.
1: Between Hillary Clinton's email issues and the DNC email issues, maybe they should just go back to paper. One thing that is just ex- extraordinary here is the passivity of response from Donald Trump on all things Russia. So leaving aside the the invitation to hack, he's like gearing up and is excited about the trade war he's going to launch with China. But then when it comes to Russia, who his predecessor as the Republican nominee said was the number one geopolitical foe in America, in response to Russia hacking this and also all the other things Russia is doing – trump is basically like well you know wouldn't be nice if we got along with him and when asked well yeah yeah, but aren't you going to do something about the way they're behaving he says oh well i'm not i'm not going to tell you what i'm going to do because i don't want to let you know in my plans he's certainly happy to talk about what he'll do with respect to china but with russia he has this patty cake response which lends credence to the to the theories about his connections to the country but which again puts him in a New category from his own party. I mean, Paul Ryan's spokesman, in response to what Trump said on Wednesday, they called Putin a thug, and was and were very and highly critical of Russia. So it's just another way. And this is something obviously the Democrats are trying to exploit in the number of in the many 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 times that Republicans have been praised by Democrats this week. I mean, Paul Ryan was praised by Kane, Jim Baker was came, praised by Hillary Clinton, John McCain was praised last night from the podium and got huge applause in the hall. George Herbert Walker Bush was called one of the most underrated presidents by this sitting president in my interview with him, and it goes on and on. This praise that's happening because there's a concerted effort to basically say that Donald Trump and Obama mentioned this explicitly in his speech, is not a Republican or a conservative, that he is outside of this tradition. And that is certainly true on the Russia question. And so for me, that's the thing that's more amazing than his like, than his sort of jokey, but nevertheless, obviously not in keeping with uh, what we expect from presidents call
0: on on Russia to hack. Right. And, and just to just to get into the specifics a little bit, the 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 points that people are calling Trump on are, A... He seems to have gotten financed for certain projects he was doing by Russians uh, or people closely tied to Russia, and so that he, so that even if he doesn't, he says, "Oh, I don't have any projects in Russia." That's not to say that he hasn't gotten funding for projects he's doing elsewhere from Russians. That's number one. Number two, um, his campaign manager Paul Manafort has very close ties to. Russia and has been a, a kind of an apologist for Russia's worst behavior and for some of Russia's worst people. He has his foreign policy advisor has extremely close ties to Gazprom, which is the most powerful company in Russia and is essentially an arm of the Russian state. The RNC platform, which Trump otherwise didn't meddle with too much, he explicitly sort of rolled back U.S. commitments around helping Ukraine. He has said this stuff about not. Not uh, defending the Baltic States in the event of a NATO an attack on them, even though they're NATO allies there are theories that he one reason why he may not want to release his tax returns that there may be stuff about Russia in there so there's a lot that is very suspicious in his connections to Russia and he also it also he has it exactly backwards that that China is the country where we should be coddling and like working really hard to develop close relationships because we have economic connections with them which are super important to us and to the world and and that in fact much of the world's prosperity depends on the u.s china economic bilateral relationship being as strong as possible russia is much less important russia russia is is i mean that's one reason why it's so dangerous is because it is economically so weak Trump wants to treat it as though it is the same kind of superpower it was forty years ago, which it isn't. How Emily, do the Trump allies in the conventional Republican establishment, such as, you know the ones that the ones that have aligned himself with with uh, Trump, how do they contort themselves to justify his Putin apologism and his support for hacking?
2: I was listening to NPR this morning and they had Congressman Tom Cole of Oklahoma come on and he just kept trying to say that the problem was Hillary Clinton using her email server in a way that made it vulnerable, not anything that Donald Trump was saying about it. And I... I just, it was so uncompelling and so clearly a runaround of the interview. I mostly was just pissed off at NPR for deciding this was how they were going to handle it. And they also set it up by talking about how the Democrats were pouncing on Trump's remarks as opposed to just like, well, Trump said this thing. What does that mean? I really feel like we have moved beyond some moment of like polite discourse in which false equivalency by the press is helpful or or needed. and. This is going to sound kind of crazy, and I, I try not to be a conspiracy theorist, but t- hearing Trump talk about Putin and Russia makes me feel like he wants to be the president so he can plunder our resources and like do, make some business dealings with people in his incredibly mercurial way. He has a side he has an affinity for, and he sees Putin as a kind of fellow strongman, and it just seems like who the hell knows what could happen.
0: It, is this going to be one of these scandals where, weirdly, it's going to hurt Trump and the right more than it hurts the DNC? The, so the DNC is clearly damaged by this exposure. It, it caused more rift between Sanders and Clinton supporters. It's embarrassing. There are who knows what other documents that that the WikiLeaks or the Russians are sitting on that could come out at the same time, there's been such a backlash against Trump and this exposure of Trump's uh, Russia sympathies and the new focus on his tax returns. And then the 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 stupid thing he said about hacking um, that such that this thing, which ought to have been a, a real plum for Trump in, in terms of damaging Clinton and the Democrats may turn out to, in fact, uh, turn on them.
2: Right. Well, if that happens, it will be because of Trump's crazy reaction, right? I mean, he could have, there, there, as with everything, I think he can't, couldn't stand this week that he wasn't the center of attention. And there he was, like, back on the top of the homepage, at the top of the TV broadcast. People are talking about him, even though it's the Democratic Convention this week. And I also wondered if that's worth it to him.
1: I wonder what his reaction is going to be to the fact that the ratings for the Democratic Convention are far higher by, like, millions of viewers than they were the Republican convention. Since Truly that's that is the that thing he
2: will be wounded by, whether he reveals it or not. He will. That will be what gets to him.
1: Because he's talked a lot about it. I think the Democrats make a... I, I think that jumping on the Trump emails thing is... I don't think if you're the Clinton campaign, you want to be talking about her email server a lot. Just ever. Uh, and I think that um, that this is a kind of traditional Trump trap which is to say something outrageous and then when everybody's talking about it people are expressing outrage that's fine that they're constantly expressing outrage about donald trump but they're also talking on the way to the outrage they're talking about the fact that hillary clinton deleted thirty-three thousand emails which also keeps that in the conversation i think that playing that that having the views he does about russia I mean, I know it's not as sexy and it's not as easy to explain as the as the comment he made about hacking and give me the emails, but that's the one that's more, that's the one that's more actually effectively worrying to lots of people, lots of Republicans too, in
0: the actual reality of what it's like to be president and in the reality of American foreign policy. I'm going to close with just an observation. I find it actually amazing that there hasn't been an IRS some IRS official who's like, I'll go to jail, who's just like stolen the Trump tax terms and released them. I wonder if they have them locked down in some special way. Because I, I was, or I, I'm just shocked that no one has tried to get those things out in the world. Right, and that you can actually hide anything like that. It's also not just, it's not just the
1: IRS, it's whoever trumps right, tax. Right, is tax preparers, right? Right, and that's a big firm with lots of people who could potentially, you know, in theory, get, get access to them. I'm, I'm, it's just surprised anything can be
0: hidden for that long. Well, I mean, you would definitely, I mean, you would be, you'd be in, you know, you'd, you would never have a job again and you'd probably go to prison. Is is the big problem with it? I mean, so it's it's. I'm not sure. I don't know. Do
2: don't discourage people from trying. Maybe this is our like listen up <laughs> moment. Uh, no, I'm. I guess that's not a good thing to advocate for. Not inside the IRS. But if some whistle. Yeah, look at you.
1: You're encouraging people encouraging to break law the law. Yeah.
0: Would you encourage just the way he was
1: encouraging? Yeah. He was encouraging the Russians to release emails and and now you're encouraging the people to to break the law. This is we're going we're descending into lawlessness.
0: Yeah. Would you encourage some lawyer to break an attorney client privilege just to you know to do your do your bidding?
1: I
2: mean, I'm a journalist. We like leaks. We're we we do not right like we don't usually go around completely judging people. The, the the line between the leaker and the whistleblower on this one could be thin.
0: That's Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting auraframes.com to get thirty dollars off plus free shipping on their best selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Let us go to Cocktail Chatter when you are when you're um Sitting on your porch, awaiting delivery of of uh, Trump's tax returns from your insider source Emily, and having a having a nice boozy Sunday afternoon. What are you going to be chattering about?
2: The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, one of my favorite little parts of the government, the watchdog agency that Elizabeth Warren helped start, announced this week that they are going to talk about setting rules into place that would do much more to crack down on debt collection companies who come after people for debt that isn't even necessarily their debt. You know, this is. huge problem, especially if you're a poor person, that you know, sometimes you don't pay something back and then these collection agencies sell your debt to someone else and then they harass you and call you and make you think that you have to pay these huge fees and fines that you never owed in the first place. And these regulations seem like they would make it harder for debt collection companies to essentially try to fake people into paying them. So, We'll see if these rules go into place. But a friend of mine, Jake Halpern, wrote a book called Bad Paper last year all about debt collection. So I've been interested in this ever since I read that. This could be a a blow to the debt collection companies in a way that could be good for people who have a lot of trouble figuring out when they're being told they owe money, you know, what exactly this is and how they're supposed to fight back.
0: John, what is your chat?
1: Someone once said when you're selling a book, you are allowed to completely drop all of your normal s- sort of uh, um, boundaries against in the first place. Promoting yes. yourself? You're all your normal yes. boundaries against self-promotion. So, uh, I'm going to do that for the moment. Um anyway, so the book that is in part the result of all the love that I have received and that we have received over the years from from GabFest listeners who uh were the ones who Uh, like the show and the chatters at the end of the show enough for me to think, hey, why not start a podcast? that's just an extended version of some of those chatters. And then who were so lovely and wonderful in being fans of that, that they encouraged me to write the book. So it's all your damn fault that on Tuesday, a book comes out. And if you want to pre-order it, go to whistlestopbook.com. And if you show proof of pre-ordering, you will get a link to a bootleg version of Whistle Stop that was recorded in August of 2015 under a red comforter in a closet in Castine, Maine and it was a look at the 2016 presidential race at that moment in time, trying to guess what it would be like um, or or where it was going. Where So it was where the campaign had been so far and where it was going and it didn't run at the time because there were some audio issues and so now it's a historical document with lots of amusing... Um, historical Wait, did, um
2: did you do a good job of, of predicting of projecting forward?
1: I mean I think the essential thrust of it is here's what's different than what we've come to expect in politics. And the big question is whether these rules have been temporarily suspended or whether we are seeing a new uh a new shift in these rules because of the the Sanders and Trump campaigns, but it was also an attempt to kind of set the stakes for the election and talk about the presidential system and whether it meets the needs of the people who are electing presidents to do things. Um, So I think it's not hugely embarrassing. There are definitely embarrassing moments in it, but anyone who has listened to me over the years knows that that would be part of the uh, process anyway. I don't know. You guys will have to listen to it
0: and and, and see what you think. That's cool. All right. So pre-order Pre-order Whistle Stop and get that. My Chatter is a about a remarkable t- sad story in the Washington Post by Eli Saslow, who's a, just a brilliant reporter. It's called How's Amanda? And it's about the story of a woman who is an opiate addict, a heroin addict, but you know who got into it through pain pills. She's back home living with her mother um, and she's about to enter a form of treatment and her mother is trying to just prevent her from from relapsing before this treatment program starts because it's a, she, it's a form of treatment where if you have taken any opiates in the previous couple of weeks before the program starts, it it just totally messes with you. And so the mother is trying to make sure she doesn't take any opiates during this period. And it's all about this woman trying to control her addiction and the mother trying to control her daughter. It's so sad and so difficult to read and such an incredible portrait of the hell that is opiate addiction and the kind of varieties of opiate addiction. I didn't realize there were so many different ways you can abuse. You can abuse with methadone. You can abuse with pills. You can abuse with heroin. It's an amazing piece. I think it's part of a series, which I don't know whether the other pieces of the series have run yet or not, but um, How's Amanda is the one that I read. So uh, check it out. Our intern is Kevin Townsend. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lickov is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is, of course, the chief content officer for Panoply. We're part of the Panoply Network, and you should check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. I almost wore my Panoply t-shirt today, but I didn't. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest, which has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest, and our email address is GabFest at Slate.com. Please subscribe to the GabFest in iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there. We need some comments and ratings. We need to push up the rankings. I noticed we we had dropped down the rankings a little bit, people. Your comments and ratings and subscriptions help us, so please. You
2: sound like Donald Trump. All about the numbers.
0: It's all about the numbers. Yeah, we we were behind some podcasts. I did not want us to be behind. I'm not gonna name any names. I'm just gonna say that. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. I will not be with you next week. I'm going to be on vacation, but um, John and Emily will be.
2: Yes.
3: (laughs) That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy,
2: like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes.
1: Talk about starting the morning right